Wait. Physically moving it up and down like a naval aircraft on an aircraft carrier? Exactly that. We have the technology, and so we applied that tech to commercial wings. And huh. so when you 777X land, you're going to see that wings fold up. Unfortunately, you learn that decisions are made by people, and oftentimes people have agendas beyond maximizing shareholder value, the agenda being their own careers. I'm very fortunate at my company of six people right now. We all know at the end of the day, it's about the company, it's about our customers, and it's not about ourselves, and we all have fun. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show where we hang out with cool people who build cool shit. Today, we're hanging out with Alex Lee, co-founder and CEO at TrueWind, the company building an AI co-pilot to financial analysts and accountants around the world. Hey, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me here. I think I need to come up with a more fun tagline like yours. The show <laughs> hang out with people building cool shit. That's good. We're constantly debating redoing the tagline and the name of the oh. show. So, hey, we're, it's oh, a work in progress. The tagline is great. I love it. Glad you like it. So, Alex, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about TrueWind? For sure. So, about TrueWind, it's like you already covered, we're building an AI co-pilot for accountants and financial analysts. For too long, financial professionals have been left behind on technology tools. And part of it is the fault of developing good technology for them. The other part of the fault is they already have one of the best tools in the world, that being Microsoft Excel. And so... Fantastic and great challenge. And I think what's been missing in all these years of tech innovation is the, is LLMs, the ability to capture context in the question. And let me give a very simple example. If you work at a startup and you go down the street and you buy a cup, that cup is classified as an office expense. But if I work at your neighborhood Starbucks or Blue Bottle and I buy that same cup, that's a cost of goods sold. It's the same bank transaction with two outcomes. That's a math problem that software cannot solve, not without an additional input being, what does your business do? What does my business do? What is the purpose of this purchase? And that information is stored in a natural language. We haven't had technology to capture that at scale until today. So that's what we're doing. We're using LLMs and capturing that last piece of information that's missing in finance, really giving finance professionals everywhere superpowers. Where does the name come from? True. You're asking. I love when people ask this question. So Truin is actually a sailing term. You are sailing on a boat. The boat is moving and you're measuring one wind speed. That's relative to the motion of the boat. But the true wind speed is some, is the speed you measure from a stationary point on land. And that's what we see as role of finance to be the objective third party observer watching the boat from a stationary point and measuring the true wind speed. Ah, in aviation, there's a similar concept as well. There's like true airspeed and indicated airspeed. It's the same thing, right? You're moving through wind and the measurements you make are inherently wrong, basically biased. And so I did think about, because I come from that world, I did think about using that name, but three words as well as the word indicated, I don't know, little, it doesn't roll off the tongue as well. No, (laughs) no, it does not. True wind is a better name for sure. Alex, I have a question for you. We recently interviewed a lot of YC founders. And obviously, YC is one of the most prestigious accelerators in the world. But is it actually worth it? Because they take a lot of shares from you. Do you actually get the benefit back from giving out those shares to them? I think as a first-time founder, you definitely do. I think about it from the lens of 
in the early days, you really need all the help you can get to be successful in this. And especially in early days, you're talking about percentage points. And at the time, it's really nothing. As much as we try to say we raise at whatever cap, your company's not worth anything yet. I think later on, maybe you're talking about percentage points of tens of millions, hundreds of millions, then it's perhaps more meaningful to bargain and negotiate. As steep as the YC price is, yes, short answer is yes, 100 times. I would do it all over again. And the reasons are primarily threefold. Number one, the group partners are fantastic. They've seen so many companies that they truly are excellent at distilling down to the crux of the problem. Number two is the community. I'm working in person with five other YC companies, most from my batch, one from the current batch. We're all in the fourth floor of the canopy space in FIDI. We affectionately call it the Y Canopy. We're in the trenches together. We see each other every day and we help each other with tough problems. And that community only happened because we were all, we all went through YC. And the third thing is work at a startup, YC's hiring platform. Hiring is, it is so difficult. I know people say it all the time and now I'm really experiencing it for the first time. And work at a startup is a great platform to take all the software engineering talent that exists on LinkedIn and filtering it for people who want to work at a startup. And so it's been very helpful. In fact, to help us find our first founding engineer. Number one, the group partners. Number two, the community. And number three, work at a startup are the reasons why YC is worthwhile. Yeah. I wonder if you also see a lot of value in just having that badge of approval from the most prestigious accelerator in the world. I think so. When it comes to that intro, you ping another YC founder, you just say that you're from YC. It serves as an inherent warm intro already, right? They'll at least read your email. When it comes to talking to a prospective customer, it's a brand that they've probably heard of. Gotcha. Are they back to uh, being in person? Like you have to actually yeah. be in person too? Okay. Yeah, it's in person. So it, I went through winter 23 and they asked everyone to move to SF. Recommended, highly recommend. And they had a bunch of in-person events, a weekly happy hour with the whole batch. And then every other week they would have a small group get together with your particular group. And they also had a two, three day retreat up in Sonoma. And this batch, the summer 22 batch I hear is even more in person. All the office hours are in person and my batch office hours are still remote. So YC is all back in person. They're single-handedly trying to lift San Francisco out of the depths of everything you see on Twitter. Another question for you, like you mentioned, hiring is hard. And especially for startup, people always brag about how fast they grew their hair count. And it seems like adding people is always good, but adding people also has its downside. So I'm curious, how do you balance? You want to grow fast, you want to grow a team, but how do you maintain the downside, the culture dilutions? Yeah, I don't know why. I think it's so silly that there's this culture of hire more people and brag about your headcount. On one hand, I get it from like the venture economic standpoint. We're giving you money and to get to 100 million AR in five years, so I need you to like pedal to the metal, right? And part of that is bringing people on. I think the other misaligned incentive is it's more impressive to say I grew a sales organization to a hundred people and I managed them versus I bought a $100,000 piece of software, even though the $100,000 piece of software would have been better. But I think that's what you vet for in management interviews is their ability to grow a team and manage it. And so there's this career mis- misalignment. I'm imagining in the future, whatever KPIs I would have for an executive team, it should be the KPI per headcount. And that <laughs> reduces the incentive to try to drive your headcount down a little bit. Anyways, I digress there. See, so you ask the question around how it is that I think about managing this? I think about it as 
our traction should always be ahead of where our team is. And by that means, we're really stretching the ability of the team. And it also forces us to bring on only A plus players into the company. And that way it prevents us from getting too bloated from a headcount. And like you mentioned, the overhead, the management and the culture deterioration that comes out of having too many people. That's how I think about it. My job is at the end of the day is growth. And so the growth of the company should always be steps ahead of where we are and everything else. It's a good point. The other thing I think, Alex, you were making a comment about is the silly culture, right? Of bragging about headcounts, treating headcount instead of a means to an end, rather as an end itself. Hey, I was able to manage an org of 100 people. I hired X number of people. I wonder if part of that is because it's not only incentivizing for the founder, but it sort of recursively trickles down the entire org tree. Because as a company grows, every layer from upper to middle to lower management feels like as they hire people under them, they're developing their own careers. So when they go get their next job, they can be like, oh, when I started, it was just me and I hired a team of 10, 50, 100. So everybody gets to brag about that. It's a very human reaction to think, oh, wow, that's so cool. That's so impressive. I have to remind myself, ask them about what they delivered. Ask them about how they met their KPIs for the sales team. What were your revenue goals and targets? How did you hit them? For marketing, how did you drive inbound? That's ultimately what matters. Yeah. How many people you put at it is secondary to that. All right. So Alex, I want to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about your story and what brought you here. Something that stood out to me when we were first meeting each other is that you went through this career of being an aerospace engineer to being an investor to being an entrepreneur and all the steps i'd love to understand that a little bit if possible alex i'd love to start from the top tell me about early days alex tell me about your childhood how you grew up where you grew up what's that like i grew up in hong kong spent five years of my childhood in beijing very sheltered, very loving home. I hear stories of people's childhood of the trials and tribulations they went through. I didn't go through those. My dad did well. He worked for a US company, was an expat in Hong Kong and had a very blessed childhood. I remember running around parks, playing sports. Oh, I remember going to always negotiating with my parents on how many Pokemon cars I could buy. <laughs> I lived in this apartment complex in Hong Kong and I knew a lot of the kids from the community. We all went to the same school. One of the kids somehow figured out how to, as long as the apartment door wasn't deadlocked, they could open the door with their bare hands by like shimming the lock in a certain way. I'm not even kidding. So basically it meant that we were able to break into any single apartment in that building. <laughs> we were- and How old were you? eight, nine, 10 years old, we had no clue what a big deal that was, what a problem was. All we knew was, hey, there's this one apartment that's not sold. So we would break into that apartment and we would just play games there, throw a tennis ball along the wall, uh, bring our Pokemon cards, bring our Game Boys and just have a bunch of fun. Now, it did come in hand in one time when my parents locked themselves out of the apartment and I decided <laughs> to break into our own home. And needless to say, they were pretty conflicted as to whether or not that was okay. But, were they uh, surprised or did they tell them? Did uh, you tell them that you could do that? I didn't tell them before. I was just like, hey, I'm going out with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh, we're locked out. Um, I can I can help with that. Yeah. Don't that ask me. For a moment. You might want to turn around. 
but I had a, you know, I had a very good childhood and graduated high school in Hong Kong, came to the States for college. Moving on, after you graduated, you joined Boeing, which is a very well-known company, as an engineer, right, I think. What's it like being a real engineer? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was a ton of fun working there. I was part of the aerodynamics group. I joined as the 777X development project was really picking up steam before we had any real commitment from customers. Sorry, so, what is 777? So I know 777. What is 777X? What does uh, X stand for? So within Boeing, when there's a development program, they just throw an X behind it to signal that it's still in product development. And so 777, as you so guys, you guys know- are, You guys are the original X before Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm also curious, um, you know, as, a, as an engineer working on 777X, to the extent you can share, what's the biggest engineering problem you had to solve during that project? So we had to, we encountered some very peculiar things. So the part of very simple aerodynamics, if you want to fly further, make the wing larger. Okay. So we made the wing larger. That's the first place that we started. As the airplane takes off and lands, the way an aircraft lifts up from the ground is the pressure below the wing is higher than the pressure above the wing. So the pressure is pushing up above the wing. But if the pressure is pushing up at the ends of the wingtips, it pushes up or, or nothing. And then it rolls over above the wing. It creates what we call vortices. The bigger the wing, the bigger the vortices. And the airport has a schedule of planes taking off. If there's a 737, a small airplane taking off, there's X number of minutes. If it's a 747, a jumbo aircraft taking off, it's a wide number of minutes, much longer wait time because you got to wait for the vortices to die down before the next airplane can take off. With the 777X, with new wing design, it was so large that the vortices were meaningfully larger that it would have caused issues with airport flight scheduling and also airport parking. Each gate is designed for either a 777, a 747, or a 737. The new 777 wing would have had to fit in a 747 parking lot, which would have, again, created more logistical nightmares. And so how do we solve it? For the 777X wing, we folded the ends of it. So on takeoff, you fold the wings down, and after you land, you fold it up. Wait, physically moving it up and down like a naval aircraft on an aircraft carrier? Exactly that. We have the technology, and so we applied that tech to commercial wings. And huh. so when you 777X land, you're going to see that wings fold up. Crazy. I've never seen that in, in real life. Yeah. It's going to be so cool. And as for the vortices problem, that was such a hard technical problem that went up to the, they're called senior tech fellows. They're like the senior leaders of engineering who like have executive status. They solve the hardest problems in aerospace. They write papers, are academics, et cetera. From what I understand, larger aircrafts actually have to call themselves heavy on the ATC. So like the ATC knows that they're like, oh, so-and-so heavy, you're clear to land and we have to like leave enough space behind you for the other aircraft. That's right. And that's why eventually you jam up at when you approach the aircraft, right? There's oftentimes a queue of airplanes landing. Yeah. It's sometimes really cool, by the way, like when it's like dark or something and then you're on the runway and you look out, there's just a line of a landing line. lights. Yeah. Yeah. A line of specs out there. It's pretty yeah. neat. Yeah. All right. I could nerd out over this more. I love the density of aviation content on the podcast episodes these days. But 
I want to pivot back to the story about you and your journey. What would you say is the one biggest thing you've learned working in the corporate world before you took the plunge into to the entrepreneurship side of things? The short answer is not a whole lot. The way that corporates operate is almost entirely the opposite of how startups operate. Unfortunately, you learn that decisions are made by people. And oftentimes people have agendas beyond maximizing shareholder value, the agenda being their own careers. And I'm very fortunate at my company of six people right now. We all know at the end of the day, it's about the company, it's about our customers, and it's not about ourselves, and we all have fun doing that. So these are the kind of the very joyful years. I imagine in the future, as the company scales, inevitably politics has to play a part in how you operate for better or for worse, and it's just about managing. So when I was in VC, it would, it's not so much corporate, right? I worked at a seed fund for a solo GP, but then separately I worked for a CVC, which is backed by corporates, but never felt that way. We're a small team of 11 people. We operated entirely independently. And how did you get from aerospace engineering to investment? Yeah, I think life boils down to really a few key moments. There's a lot of, okay, you're on this journey and you're putting the effort day in and day out, but inflection points, whether it goes up or down or sideways, meaning like a pivot into something else, those inflection points don't happen all that frequently, I think. And that's what I mean by life comes down to a few moments. I was, I was getting ready to leave Boeing and go to business school and I was catching up with a lot of, call it like family, friends, acquaintances that I grew up with. And this guy who was 20 years my senior was starting a venture firm at the time. And I was really curious. I was interested. I had never even heard of it. I didn't even know what it was, but I knew I respected him. So I asked if I could intern for him, if I could work for him for free. And he took me on. I'd like to think I did some good work, but I imagined he probably found me to be a headache as well. But that gave me enough confidence and also baseline knowledge to go recruit for VC. That's how I was able to make that jump from working as an engineer at Boeing, a corporate traditional company, to working at a VC firm. I did have to be a little bit tactical. I focused my search for funds that wanted to do industrial technologies, robotics, supply chain. That area was something I could speak intelligently to. Right. Leverage your background in that area to speak knowledgeably. Exactly. And do good work. Yeah. Wait, so you answer how, but why? Why did you do it? Why did I get into VC? Yeah. Why did you choose to make the transition? And why did you want to go back to business school? Because it sounded like that was the impetus for this conversation. I wanted to go back to business school because I wanted to make more money. There's always this question in MBA applications, like why an MBA, why business school? And we always have to like write something good. But at the end of the day, everyone wants- Because we want the world to be a better place. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really because you you want to move up in your career, you want to make more money. I think that's the underlying reason. Yeah. It was really career optionality, let's put it that way. And- Seed asked for specifically YVC. I got to intern for this guy. I got to see what this industry does and I became so interested in it. I get to work at the forefront of technology. Hardly work. I get to see the forefront of technology, be able to meet all these interesting people and be able to think about market dynamics, investing frameworks, build up my Rolodex of connections. It really is a fun job. So that's why I decided to pursue VC. As a career, I was very fortunate to spend three years working in it. That's awesome. And I really do appreciate the honesty there too, because uh, sometimes 
we're just not as forthright as we probably should be, that a big part of it is about money. Maybe that's not all of it, but as far as career goes, that's a pretty major reason we're all going to work every day. Gotta make a paycheck. Gotta. So how did you go from working in venture capital to starting your own company? In my time in VC, I spent the bulk of my time investing. I spent a bit of it, call it on like a platform or ops standpoint, where I would parachute in and work with the portfolio companies on the financial model, financial plans. We took board seats at Alliance Ventures. And so I got pretty familiar with a company's financial operations. That was when I first saw how broken that entire workflow and process is. So I started digging around. I started researching writing blogs, as many VCs like to do. In terms of starting my first company, Blue Light, it was a little by chance and serendipitous where a friend introduced me to another friend and we really hit it off on ideas. We got along really well and we decided to work on a trial project together. We needed one more person. He brought on his best friend from college. So the three of us spent three, four months working on a trial basis, had a lot of fun signed up a couple of customers and shipped the product. So then we look, we asked each other, do we want to do this? Do we want to work together? And for me, that was the big point. It was about the people at the end of it, right? We shouldn't pick the thing that we want to work on, but more so the people we want to work with. And these were guys I wanted to work with. So that's why I took that first plunge and left Alliance Ventures to start my first company. Blue Light went through YC in winter 21 and had a blast. So it was the people that you wanted to work with. That's interesting. So the three of you started Blue Light. It was also a YC company. What happened with Blue Light and what led up to TrueWind? We couldn't find product market fit is the short answer. And when you can't find product market fit, you need to think about pivoting. Now my now ex-co-founders, they're experts in the data space. And I wanted to, I knew a lot about finance. So I wanted to build a financial data solution. And in the pivot conversation, they wanted to build a data solution, a pure pay data analytics solution, which wasn't for me. Like the needs of finance are different from other analytics groups. So last May, it made sense for me to bow out. And founder separations are never easy, as amicable as we made it. It's not easy. And so I took a couple months to make sure my head was screwed on straight. I play basketball and for the first time since high school, I went to the playground and just shot hoops for a couple hours every morning. It's very refreshing. Then it was a question of, do I want to go back into VC? Do I want to start another company? Do I want to join a big company or a startup? So I interviewed, had a couple of offers, couldn't imagine going to work at another company again, but I did entertain going back into venture. At the same time, I was dabbling with true, what is now true. And I was just dabbling, seeing what I missed the first time having the luxury to start fresh again. And the confluence of many things came together where landed some customers, built V1 of the, pro of the product myself, met my now co-founder Tennyson. And at some point you just had to make a decision. And I decided I want to do it again. I wanted to run it back. There's this feeling of like unfinished business. From the first startup. Yeah, 100%. And this like, co-founder breakup, if you will. You said it's never quite as amicable. Are you still personal friends with the ex-co-founders? We weren't friends to begin with. We were co-founders almost from the get-go. They were friends from before. No, I wouldn't say so. We're not on an interacting basis right now. 
But I can see us being so perhaps in the future. It takes a bit of time. You need to let yeah. some of the like breaking up with a girl, right? So how's uh, Truman going nowadays? To the extent you can share. Yeah. Guess, like in, in what phase you are trying to find product fit? Tell us a bit more about how you guys are operating. For sure. Truman's been a hell of a ride. We went through YCM winter 23, came out of it early April. We had a good successful seed raise and raised over $3 million from many fantastic seed investors, including Fin Capital, FinTech Focus Fund, Fellows Fund, their AI focused fund been really great with intros, Scrum Ventures, Soma Capital, and Beat Ventures. That put us in a position to be well capitalized. But we also have been found a lot of success on the customer front. We have over 40 paying customers now. And this is what I early on I talked about. I always want traction to be a step ahead of where we are on a team. We're a team of six people, three full time and three contractors. And so the number one priority is we need to ramp up the team to be able to keep up with the customer demand that's coming in. Early on, look, finance is very delicate. I can't just go and knock on the door of Nike and ask them to, you know, it's social proof means more, I think, in this, in this vertical than any other. So we got C stage customers to start and then we moved up and landed series A customers and series B and series C. So our customers range from a two-person C-stage company to a 200-person Series B, a Series C company. And our mindset has continued to move up market because that's where it's going to challenge us on our development. So it's been a hell of a ride. And at the does it ever feel easier? No, it never feels easier. Your challenges just evolve and the challenges change. Interesting. And do you have a uh, working product at this point? It sounds like you have a bunch of customers already. Yes. Yes, we do. Nice. And because you were... Winter 23, which is pretty recent. I'm curious, like, how quickly could you pull that off and get the first person to say, yep, I'll use that. I'll pay for it. It took, I would say, we, we went heads down for like two weeks to get that first MVP. And it was good enough for a demo. And good enough for a demo means good enough to close a sale. And then after you close the sale, great. You just bought yourself another couple of weeks to make it a little bit more usable and functional. <laughs> That's the mindset that we're in, right? Yeah. Paying down tech debt is something that is earned. I don't think we've earned it yet. Now we've gotten some customers, so we pay down some of the tech debt, but we should be accumulating more to make sure the business keeps moving forward. That's how I think about like always staying on the cusp of what's working. I think in startups, we'd like to talk about, just to bring up airplanes again, we'd like to talk about flying the airplane while building it. And we embody that through and through. So you mentioned that in your corporate life, you learned a lot of things about what not to do. And now you're a founder, second time founder, actually. Can you tell us like one thing you really don't like about something you encounter in corporate world and you want to avoid that in your startup? And how do you achieve that? I think busy work is something that will fall in that category. There's a lot of busy work that perhaps needs to be done in corporate, or even that needs to be done. There's a lot of busy work that is done because it might look good to your boss, but it may not meaningfully drive value to your customers. What does that translate in startups? Things like, okay, setting up your cap table. Should you have a cap table? I think the answer technically is yes. Do I need a cap table now? No, because it's all in my head. If I needed one, I could put it together in five minutes. Should I spend the time to get onboard onto a cap table solution now? 
No, you don't need to. You should be focused on your customer and delivering a product, talking to your customers and finding product market fit because the setting up a cap table help you do that. No, you can take care of that closer to the next raise when it becomes like a meaningful thing for the company. So that's the category of things. And I think like my first time around building Blue Light, I might've found myself caught up with more busy work than I should have. And it's, it's tempting because you keep, once you launch on YC, you get a bunch of emails from a bunch of cold emails from people trying to sell you their stuff. And it's very easy to react to it because it's pulling you into it. So you just react to it versus to find a product market fit, you got to push, you got to push the boulder up the mountain. And unless you actively put energy into it, it's not going to happen. I have a bunch of questions there, but I suspect yeah. that section will go way long because yeah. I'm also trying to grow a new product. And every day I'm like, it's not enough hours for me to handle all the incoming requests, but am I spending my time in the right places that's going to drive growth? Right? right. Yeah. I also have a bunch of follow-ups, but I'll ask asynchronously, actually. It's pretty interesting, but let me move on. We always ask founders this question, what is success to you? If you imagine five years from now, Alex, what does it mean to be a successful? It can be career, it can be personal. How do you define that? Yeah. I think their success from a measurable standpoint changes over time. Like when I had no customer, success was one customer. And after I got one, the success became 10. Now that we have over 40, success means 100. So success becomes like this never-ending moving target. And for me, it's becoming okay with that. It's becoming, oh, and how do I become okay with it? It's by thinking of this as a competitive game. Growing up as a kid, I liked playing video games. Then as I grew up, I liked playing sports. And I approach it with a lot of respect and discipline, but it is ultimately a game and it's a game I want to compete and win at. And so while there is a benchmark and perhaps numbers that I want to hit, recognizing that the number is going to continually move up you really have to love it. You really have to enjoy the day in and day out, loving what you do every day and recognizing the destination that you're looking to hit. If you're fortunate enough to hit it, you will get to play another game. The destination just moved a little bit further away. And I do think that ambition is important as a competitor because otherwise you're competing for nothing or for the sake of nothing. I think it loses a little bit of meaning. So for me, it's that it's the competition, it's the aspiration to go reach that goal and knowing that once I have, I get the opportunity to play the next game and to feel lucky that I get to be doing this every single day, recognizing it's not a point in time, but it's many points. But what keeps you in the game? Like, why do you want to play the game in the first place? I think, okay, so that's an interesting question of thought. What makes you want to play this game in the first place? I think this becomes like a bigger question around humanity and why we do anything that we want to do. I think everyone finds meaning in something. If there's something that humans can wrap their head around consciousness and meaning, but where everyone finds meaning in different things. I find meaning in building a company and building a product and making customers happy and wanting to build a big business. I think there's this element of like my fascination of financial markets, which leads me to do this. And because I find meaning and interest in it, that makes every day of building Truewin a lot of fun. And for someone else, it would be something different. For some people, it could be spreading the love of architecture, food, arts to other 
I don't find meaning in that. You want me to go to an art museum and write about it? That would be a very difficult grind. That's how I'd answer that question. What about, let's do more specific to you and longer term. So I think so far we focused on career success, right? You're passionate about finance and technology. You're passionate about playing this game, right? What if it's not five years from now? What if it's 80 years from now? I want to be a part of space exploration. And I think it's nicely rooted in my upbringing. My dad worked in satellites. We grew up around model satellites and rockets. I worked at Boeing to put new airplanes into the skies. And now I'm building B2B SaaS. Huh. Something Are about you that. taking a wrong turn? <laughs> <laughs> Something about that story just doesn't sound great, but I'm having a blast and that's why I'm doing it. Think about that 80, my, my life, my whole life horizon. I think, yeah, I think the, the history of mankind is written on, on a story, on a timeline of exploration. This, I'm going to be quoting from the West Wing here. First, man came out of the cave, and then they looked across the mountain, and then they crossed the ocean, and then explored the West. Then we took to the skies, and now we're taken to space. And I think about how far have we explored in space? That's the equivalent of man having built a little small boat and having sailed out maybe like 50 feet, and then suddenly realizing there are treacherous waters, so then we had to go back. And then we develop new boats to be able to cross the ocean. Then we develop planes to be able to put us 35,000 feet in the skies. Did I get that right? 35 to 40,000 feet in the skies. And then we built rockets to take us to space and then put us into, put us on the moon. And now we want to go further. So when I think about mankind is really on the edge of exploration and space is what's next. And it means so much to me because I think when you study aerospace, in academics, yes, you learn about the mechanics of how aircraft work, but you also think about what it means to explore. And while I took a bit of a detour to build B2B SaaS, I'm an aerospace enthusiast through and through, and that's where I see myself. I love that. I share a lot of the same passion, but we can dig into that a little bit more, maybe in the deep questions section. But that's, I think that's interesting. Yeah. So for the final and my personal favorite section is deep questions, right? Now that we know who Alex is, we know where you come from, we know what you care about. Alex, I'm curious, what's something that's always on your mind? What's sort of a deeper question that you spend time thinking about? So kind of touched on this topic a little earlier. The question more broadly would be, we're so insignificant in this universe. If you think about the vastness of the universe and the timeline of the universe, why is it that we do anything? And how do we, why do we get up in the morning? Why do we do what we do? And why do we push as hard as we do? See, do you got a hot take on that one? Sure. I think my short answer to this is uh, why do we don't do anything? <laughs> why <I> mean, not? Because <laughs> one of the, I remember this is from one of our early episodes is from Parker. He said, uh, inaction is a choice, right? It actually takes effort to not do shit. And so my, my answer to this is always, we're not going to figure out the meaning of life, right? And the only thing we are certain is, experience the life as seed, as Alex Hansen, is probably a one-time take. So why not do shit? 
because it takes effort either way, because it's suffering either way. So my approach is always push your hardest as you can till you can't because it's suffering either way. So You're saying it's suffering in action is also suffering is what you're saying. Correct. There's no way to avoid suffering, right? No matter what you do, if you do drugs every day, I mean, it's, you're just, you're just front loading the pleasure, then you will suffer later. So it's all, I think there's a certain amount of suffering you have to go through in life, no matter what you do. So pleasure shouldn't be what you optimize for. Maybe the only thing you can optimize for is experience as much as you can. Maybe that's the meaning of life. Maybe the task is actually you as the atom of universe. I think universe as a whole is probably trying to explore the meaning of itself, right? So we are part of the functionality, basically, to, to find meaning. I generally agree with the things you're saying. I guess the only thing I would defer on is I don't think it's just suffering. I think struggling may be a better word for it, right? And struggle, I don't think is a choice. In fact, I think that reflects really broadly in our society and throughout history, where, for example, we live in one of the most comfortable times there is in all of recorded history, right? Air-conditioned rooms, clean water whenever you want it, as much food and sustenance and entertainment as you want for most people who live in a relatively privileged and a large, right, portion of this country compared to most people in the world throughout most history, this is incredible. But I still observe this very fundamental existential dread in all of us. And, and it's clear to me that it, you just can't avoid this struggle, even if you can make life quote unquote better in any objective dimension. It just does not end. Though I guess back to Alex's point earlier, I think the more optimistic take on this is one is I think humans we have a lot of hubris, right? We tend to think we're hot shit. We think we're very unique, but I don't know if we're really that different from a chimpanzee or a banana. And when you look at life all around us, we are all branches and fruit off of one tree. When that first life form took its first gasp of air, or metaphorically, the first time it metabolized, it cloned itself, we're all branches off the same thing, right? We're all part of this tree of life. And when you look at how all of our brothers and sisters, all these like genetic relatives live, it's all about the struggle. It's all about living and passing that gene on. That's it. Don't overthink it, man. <laughs> That's what bugs do. That's what bananas do. That's what you should do. That's it. There's the answer has been written since the beginning, right? But I think there is a higher meaning to all of life. And I think it's exploration. I think it, it, it's expansion. I think it'd be silly to look at the universe now and say, man, there's nothing out there. Our life will never change. It's always going to be the same. We've spent thousands of years struggling and it's still the same. But like, man, thousands of years on one planet is nothing. Like, that's like giving up on the starting line. I, I just don't get that mentality. There's so much more to be had. Oh, it's just human nature. We're limited. Sure. Within the time frame that we've been talking about, over the course of millions or billions of years, what it means to be human will dissolve. We can overcome that. I think expansion can be also inward, right? One thing I think about a lot is, are we really more advanced in terms of our understanding of ourselves and the universe compared to our uh, ancestors? I don't think so, to be honest. Like if you look at all the beautiful poems people wrote, all the philosophers we had, especially Eastern philosophers, I think a lot of intuitions they had, I think are far beyond where we reached actually. 
I don't know what it, what that is, but one explanation could be they actually spend more time because they don't, they're not distracted all the time. But Netflix, <laughs> so they spend a lot of time thinking about the actual meaning of their life. But anyhow, I want to hear how do you answer this question, Alex? Like why you wake up every morning and every night <laughs> working out and build your company? I resonate a lot of, with what the two of you said, and I think everything we're saying, the things that the three of us are saying are all different takes at the same key concepts and ideas. Hanson, you're talking about how it really all boils down to living and what was the second part? Reproducing? Just eventually. Passing it on, essentially. Passing right? it on. Live right. and let live. And that there's something poetic about, okay, as humans live, we start from when we're babies and then we develop and grow and expand into the form that we are now. And we are limited by the biology of the human form. And yet we have extended our life from 40, an average of 40 years to now an average of 80 years. And that's with discovery and technology. And so I do think much of the meaning in humanity is hinged on exploration and creativity and creation. And there's something I do think, and maybe I'm stretching, but something poetic about it from, we go from babies who can't do anything into the adult forearm that we are. And then we are limited by the biology that we are given. And so we use technology and exploration to extend us beyond our current abilities. And I think there's something about that drives a lot, that drives people and to different degrees. Some people to the extreme degree, some people to lesser degree, and that's what, you know, to each his own. And the other piece you mentioned around passing it on, when people talk about the most meaningful things that they do, I would say 90% of it is in the passing on component. There's just something so meaningful about educating the next generation about having kids and teaching them everything that you know, knowing that you're passing on your legacy or passing on your skills and knowledge. So I, yeah, my view is when it comes down to meaning in the vastness of the universe and the timeline that we live within, it's those two things. And it ultimately is hinged on really the raw biology of how it is that we came to be today. Right. I think um, this, this is going to sound uh, non-nistic, but uh, I find it suspicious when we talk about meaning because um, human beings are so good at telling stories. We define our narratives. I feel like most meanings are actually assigned afterwards. I really don't think there's meanings at all in anything before you start doing it. Is there actually meaning to working out every day? Probably not. But there's meaning after you look back and assign that to a narrative. And I feel that's probably most of meanings come from is try to tell us a story <laughs> to, to, like you said, keep playing the next game. That's an interesting thought. What does Steve Jobs say? You can't connect the dots looking forward, you connect it looking backwards. And I think Correct. that's thing. Yes. Yeah. And it also becomes a powerful tool, right? If you're someone whose ambition involves scale that cannot be done with one person, a lot of the times being able to take control of that collective narrative to program a society, a group, makes it a powerful weapon, right? Call it religion, political belief, ideology, brand awareness, anything that organizes a bunch of people around some story and some assigned meaning and makes them behave in some way that is otherwise irrational. Sometimes it's what it takes to do great things. They don't really mean anything across all time. They're just a tool for its time. They are, and it certainly made things happen. It's one of the most, one of the strongest tools that we have, given the language that we communicate it. A hundred percent. 
I forget who said this, but they said, what do you think the most powerful reward is to people? It's not money. It's not food. It's not sex. It's stories. Mm. Honor is just a story, right? You give people a little pin they put on their uniform, they feel so good. Nothing compares. People give their lives for that. Literally. That's meaning. That's right. All right. This is getting too deep. Too deep. You got to reel it back. Work. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think we had a really good conversation with Alex. We'll have to follow up and uh, maybe we'll figure out the meaning of life in the next session. Perhaps we'll catch up with you next time you raise a round or something. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. Best of luck with True Win. Keep us posted. And uh, Seed and I would love to just chat casually sometime and see how you're yeah. doing and share some learnings. Guys, this was a ton of fun. Had a great time talking to you and great questions and follow-ups and all the different rabbit holes we went down. So thanks for having me here. All right. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Guys.